Welcome, friends, people for peace, pods of consciousness, planetary citizens, wherever you happen to be today, listening to Glocal News in Social Artistry. I'm your host, Dick Dalton, and each week we have the pleasure of talking to someone who is building a more humane world from the inside out. And this week, our guest is Kyler Broadus. We've been weaving back and forth in our life <laughs> more than we knew. Kyler Broadus, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dick Dalton. It's a pleasure to be here, and it's always good to see you. <laughs> yes, folks, we're on Zoom, a little bit ahead of uh, what you're listening to. Uh, you're, you'll get the audio recording, but we get to see each other's, uh, well, should I say beautiful faces? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, well, I was born in Fayette, Missouri in 1944. Wow. And Kyler Broadus was born in Fayette, Missouri in 1963. Exactly. I had come back for a couple of years of high school because my mother had started a business on the square, a clothing business. So I, I was there my sophomore and junior year, worked at Street Drugs. Uh, <laughs> we don't say that name very easily anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but but Mr. Kenny Street was the owner of Street Drugs. And uh, then I went back to Columbia for my senior year, where I had actually grown up in Columbia. And then along uh, came Kyler Broadus to Fayette. Anything you'd like to say about uh, your upbringing there and Fayette High School and going on to Central Methodist College and, or University? What do we call it? Central Methodist when I went, it was Central Methodist College, now it's Central Methodist University. It was a small town I grew up in. I lived there. It was, we had a lot of fun because my cousins and lots of relatives grew up there. So we had an extended large family. My uh, dad's mother was living with her husband still alive, so people came from far and wide when we had family reunions. So it's what I know, it's where I grew up, and I'm a proud Fayetian. I always tell people, no matter where I'm from, and they're like, that's how you say that? You're a what, a Fayetian? <laughs> and, uh, you know, people wonder what that means, and I'm like, you know, I have to explain the whole Louisiana purchase territory thing to them, and that they that like click if they remember their history. If they don't, then maybe they go look it up. So, but uh, I'm a proud Fayetian, and um, most of us are that you you are where you grew up at. Uh, and I had two wonderful parents and they always creep into my speeches or stories or whatever I'm doing, even including my teaching when I taught with, uh, you'll get there later and I'm sure you'll explain that to your audience, Dick. And, um, you know, Central Methodist College or university as it is now is a big part of my life as well. I feel like it prepared me to also compete amongst anybody on the world stage, and it did. It helped 
forced me to learn how to connect to pe with people on the world stage. And it did prepare me for that. And so I credit Central Methodist with doing a lot for me, and it did. And I'm a proud, distinguished alum of Central Methodist College. So a Central Methodist University, pardon me. See, there, there we go, my age comes out. Uh, <laughs> But uh, yeah, so I cannot say any bad. Of course, we, you know, you know, those are the things that make me a part or make up me and make parts of me and they make the strong part of me. They make the all of me. So I, you know, those are parts of Kyler that are real strong. So you probably had Alice Burke over at Fayette High School, didn't you? Oh my gosh, yes, I did have Alice Burke for freshman and sophomore English and uh, Espanol 1 and Espanol 2. Did I have to take 2? I don't know if I had to take 2, but I did for 1. And she left an impression upon my life that's lifelong and lasting. So yes, I did have Alice Burke. And uh, she, again, is in my list of favorites uh, as far as leaving a lasting impression and making me believe that I could do anything. So yes, Dick, I did have Alice Berg. Yeah. And, yeah, she was a wonderful woman amongst the many that I had. And again, that woman could teach and make you think you could do anything. And she is one of my hall of favorite teachers <laughs> always. Yes, she is. Yes. Well, uh, I attribute the same thing to her. It was in her class or a book that I read in her class that inspired me to be a medical missionary. Oh, wow. So you had Alice Burke, too. I had Alice Burke, too. And, uh, Bravo. Me and my girlfriend, uh, Susan Hickam, at the time, uh, we, we were both, we felt like we were her teacher teacher's pets, but, you know, I think everybody felt that way with Alice Burke. I was going to say I felt the same way, but I think everybody <laughs> did feel the same way, too. Who wouldn't feel that way with her? I felt like I was the teacher's pet, and yeah. I think the whole class did. So, yes. So, I, I know people listening in Fayette uh, are aware that she passed this summer, and uh, I was thankful to have gotten several visits in in the last few years. Uh, yeah, wonderful. That's that's an honor that you did and she was always on my mind because she made lasting change uh in my life and she'll always be with me uh so thank you for mentioning that and that we did lose her this summer yeah. so you went on to law school did, did something click in at central methodist to stimulate you in that direction uh, that has always been a dream of mine. That's something that clicked. I think given the arc of time I grew up in during the 60s, mm -hmm. uh, which were very honestly sort of like a time like we're in now. And mm -hmm. even though I was just born uh, and actually on the day of Dr. King's famous speech and is the day I was born on, you know, I don't think things are accidental or coincidental or any of those things. I just knew I would be a lawyer. I remember playing in my parents' house as a lawyer, even at five years old, mm. knowing that I would become a lawyer. 
I used to play Perry Mason on my bed, on my little twin bed, and I used it as the desk. And I just remember those times. And I, I remember I had a love of music or a love of law. Yeah, I was a strange little kid because I was like a little adult. Uh, so that's why I under people that are like that because I had a lot on my mind then. And then one of my things that I had dreamt of was that I would testify before Congress, that I would meet the United States president, that I would make these changes. So those were dreams I had as a child. So my fulfillment did come when I was at Central Methodist because uh, I'm going to mention another uh, probably buddy of yours, Dr. Joseph Geist. Uh, facilitated uh, trips. We Well, he was not the only one, but was part of the faculty that would take us on Janaways. But he was the student government faculty. And we would bring people in from all over the country or world to be speakers at the time. And I don't understand. I understand now they've not done that since my time, which has been a long time to have that uh, opportunity to allow the SGA to have a block of funds to do things like that. And we ran the SGA, myself and the prior person who, I'm, uh, you know, who's a great friend of the university, Keith Young. Uh, and so I was president right after he was, and we, he bought in, I bought in great speakers to this campus, including political and, and people like Shirley Chisholm. You know, I remember bringing in Shirley Chisholm and meeting dignitaries of that nature. And it was just what we did. And so I had a political interest and leaning then, not necessarily in a particular party, but just interest in working in and with people to change and make change. And so I did feel that then that I was allowed to become SGA president and go on to do those things at CMU did add to my belief that, yeah, I could go out and do things and uh, conquer the world. Yeah, we just stretched out and grabbed the world. And uh, just like we learned how to travel the world, uh, we learned how to navigate the world. And then I did some of the same things when I went to Mizzou as student bar associations, what it's called there. Mm -hmm. You know, I bought an F. Lee Bailey and a couple of other speakers and packed the house with 10,000 people. You know, it was something I knew how to do and could do and still can do if I need to know how to do. Yeah, so I went to Mizzou Law School and I made a lot of selections because my parents were older than most people my age, and I had two wonderful parents that allowed me to dream. I could read before I even entered school. Uh, my parents were wonderful people. Uh, they are, are no longer with us either, and, but they were uh, my rocks. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm amazed every speech, whether I write it out or whatever. Normally I write a speech to go give it a venue and I usually throw that one away and give the speech from my heart when I get there. But those two people are always in my speeches and their lives were about the children and making sure we were always provided for. We never knew we were poor. 
they made it so that we had no clue until we grew up and it's like, oh, we were poor because they made, yeah, you know, uh, we had no idea, you know, and it's like, we had to learn. It's like, yeah, because we worked and we worked with them in their extra jobs and numerous jobs they had. But uh, we also learned the value of work, but we never wanted for food or for anything. Uh, they made those non-issues for us uh, and protected us in lots of ways that as children you don't understand, but looking back as adults, you totally understand and considering the things that their lives put them through, they protected and did wonderful, wonderful things. Wonderful. So. Yeah. Bless their hearts. <laughs> well, you know, I have to share that because I know many people, you know, say this or that, and you never hear the good stories about good parents. But I know that I was given to and blessed by the creator with two wonderful parents. When you were at MU Law, did uh, was Mike Middleton one of your faculty? Yeah, well, Mike, Mike Middleton, who, yes, was his, was his first year teaching. Yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> And I don't laugh with wizardry. I just have a wicked laugh. So uh, I learned that in college and it's never gone away. Yes. And uh, he has been a great friend and mentor to me even to this day. You know, when I uh, was redirecting and I'm redirecting my career and uh, on my Facebook page, I saw him mark uh, when I announced, yeah, a year and a half that I was redirecting my career. And yes, and nobody can see, and, and I, I'm used to call him Dalton professor, by doctor, by the way. So it's hard for me to call him to call you Dick because I'm so used to that. But I'm seeing Dick Dalton's face here, give me the eye and it's like, yes, I noted. Because <laughs> I had been needing to change for a while and others have been after me. And you know, just by his mark, under what I had written, let me know that I was doing the right thing. And you know, he's such a soft, gentle, smart mentor and a well put together man. And so Mike Middleton is someone else that I uh, enjoy. And when we do encounter each other, it's always a wide, wise word, mm -hmm. a wise way to mentor, uh, but he always, let you do it with dignity and respect because he is always coming from a very, not only respectful, but a very logical, which of course, between lawyers, that makes sense, a logical place. And he always speaks with logic and with decorum. And not that everybody has to have that, but he always has a purpose. That's what I want to say, especially when he knows he's been a mentor to so many. So yes, he was actually, I didn't want to say that I will, the first of law, of color law professor at the university. And actually he was the first of color student at the law, at, at MU Law as well. And, you know, I went to, and I'm toying around with becoming a law professor and I was, uh, I have not been well for the last six to seven years, but I went to law professor uh, deal and uh, there were some of his colleagues of his age there and their wives were sitting with them and I got to uh, talk about him again that he had been instrumental in forging a way for lawyers of color 
and black lawyers within the law system to get jobs within law schools. Mm-hmm. So, and they're like, oh, you're his student? Yes, I'm his student, you know. Mm-hmm. So it, it was fun to be in the room when they were going on about him and his creation, uh, helping to create a way to get more diversity within not oh, the teaching of law, uh, not just the practice of law. So. Mm-hmm. He's a busy man too. <laughs> yeah, and you, you you were both uh, activists uh, in your own rights and in your own worlds, which yeah. uh, we'll get more into. Uh, I'm speaking, folks, with Kyler Broadus, uh, a lawyer, activist, uh, writer, lobbyist, uh, award-winning. <laughs> well, let me just say, award-winning black trans man. You know, I've always didn't know what to call it. There were no words in my generation and even before me generations, but there are people that have always, been people that have always existed on this planet, depending on what culture, it depended upon how you were treated. And now I've come out in the mainstream culture in America, and really I had been living that way and just didn't have a title or name or a place in the LG community. And so, yeah, after law school, although it impacted me greatly while I was doing school, uh, particularly law school, because I was like in my, like, okay, this is my last iteration of school I can stay in. (laughs) Because I had working class parents. So they're like, okay. And my dad was always supportive. So he wasn't like on the push. It's like, when you're getting out of school, when you're going to go to work, you know? And I was like, okay, am I going to have to get another degree to stay in school? Because I sure (laughs) don't want to have to wear a dress to work. You know, and it was still very sexist in those days. People don't realize how, you know, not that long ago that was. You know, people just assume things and they really do. The younger generation It's like, no, it hasn't been this way forever, people. It was only yesterday. And actually, I just talked to someone I did a training with this morning that said, yeah, the first thing they did, and I've never seen this person in their dress, nor could I imagine it, uh, and they're a lesbian, was get rid of all their pantyhose. And I'm like, oh, God, yeah, flashback. And, you know, I looked like a Kate, a man wearing pantyhose in a dress and a, carrying a lunch bucket, you know, and my dear friend, he uh, died prematurely too soon, but he was in corporate America with me. And he was like, oh my God, stop wearing that stuff. You look ridiculous. And that's actually, yeah, uh, post-law school. And uh, it's like, so I started slowly dressing, dressing more masculine. My girlfriend used to have to talk to me and to that female stuff every day, because that was like torture. Mm-hmm. And uh, she would say, it's just a uniform, it's just a uniform. And I was like Superman at the bells rang then. Yes, young people, they had bells to let you out of work even. Yes, that was so oppressive. And as soon as I could get out to the car, I couldn't even wait till I got home. I was bursting out of clothes like Superman in the car. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, and I was, I just couldn't stand it. I was just like undressing in the car you know, and it was like Superman in the phone booth. And I can't speak for other people, but that's what it was for me because the body dysphoria is that I had to pretend to be somebody that people thought they knew, which was this female person. 
And I did that for years. And I've gained so much perspective come around to talking to people that truly knew me who said, yeah, that was a horrible. Because even when I used to see you as a little girl, I'd be so unhappy because my mother would stuff me in a dress on Sunday, you know, and I would be just like, oh God, is this over? And you never see a happy picture of me because I'm like, oh God, you know, because I'm not happy in that dress. And then my little cousins would be like, aren't you supposed to be a boy? Like, why are you in this dress? Because people could just read my energy. And my energy said little boy. And my mother would try to frill me up. And it's like, and when it, she's older than me, she's older than my sister by a year. And we've talked and she'd say, yeah, I would just say no. No, she would say, and she'd tell her mother, who is my mother's sister, she goes, I don't know why my aunt uh, does that to him, you know, uh, it just doesn't look right. She, she says, I look like I had army boots on, and that's the way I walked in a dress, and I do believe it, because that's the way I felt, you know. And even my friend, when we were young, 20s in corporate America, after I finished law school, he would say the same thing. And he would try to show me how to carry the purse. And this is a straight man. And his wife was our, our mutual friend. And then he would carry the purse most of the time. Or I'd leave it in. <laughs> yeah, he would. And I'd leave it in the desk drawer. And he'd say, hey, hey, come back here. You left the purse in the desk drawer. You know, and then he'd go, stop, don't carry it like that. Carry it like this. And then he'd carry the purse. And we're talking about a straight, you know, white man in corporate America carries the purse better than I did. And then I just couldn't do it anymore. I was like, he goes, you're carrying it like a lunch bucket. And I'm like, and I was carrying it like a lunch bucket. So I'm like, I just can't do it, you know. So I just started gradually shifting the wardrobe. And, you know, they didn't want women in pants. And it's like, they wouldn't have known the difference if I came to work dressed in a suit, you know. And I finally started wearing men's suits. And the pause moment came because customers never even called me female. <laughs> they would always say, sir. <laughs> That was the problem also. So it just became a big joke and nobody ever called me by my female name. They all called me uh, sir or people just used my initials at work. And that started in college actually, people just using my initials KB. Hmm. And so, yeah, because they were like, uh, you know, we don't understand why your parents named you that name. Like, how'd you get that name as a boy? <laughs> That's, and I got tired of explaining that. So I'd say, oh, it's a family name, you know? And I was never a good liar, because if you caught me on the other call trying to show them bias and they caught me trying to lie, uh, you could catch me trying to lie. I'm never a good liar. So, so then it got to be even at the checkout stands, because that's back then when you write checks. And you know, I, I'm like a debit card person now, it's a check person. And they'd ask me, why did your parents name you this name? That's not a boy's name. And now, actually, NBA players have that name. So it is a boy's name now. It's hilarious. And they'd ask me that. And I'd say, oh, it's, it's an old family name. Then I'd just stop writing checks because I got tired of trying to explain that name. So what I did was started to change that name legally. Everything at the corporation, start, everybody started whacking out because of the name change. Uh, my, it wasn't my coworkers, it was management. 
and that was what was weird because my coworkers all were on board. Nobody had any issues. I was already dressing like a man. Everybody called me those initials, and I then was going to change the name. And that's when back then nobody had knowledge like they do now, which is why I started doing advocacy because no, there were no laws to protect me. I wasn't going to do anything different that I had been doing, but I did want my name to correspond with my gender presentation. And that's when everybody went Lulu in management uh, and then became accusatory, made all these things up because when we don't understand something, what do we do? We make all these stories up about people yeah. and a group of people. And that, yeah. yeah, and it demonizes, exactly, demonize us and make all these horrible stories up. So sadly, and I never named them, you know, although they have been in group rooms with me and and apparently they know because it, there's a lawsuit out there. So it's easy if anybody wants to find out. It's never difficult to find. Uh, but, you know, I'm a respectable kind of guy and, you know, they did their own fixing and I allow people to do that because everybody has the right to change. But I also went out and found out there was nothing to protect me. So immediately I was living in the city of Columbia, became a human rights commissioner, which I was glad Columbia was somewhat progressive. But then it took them uh, several decades to actually pass the ordinance that I had helped write. And I had been all along in many other jurisdictions helping them pass ordinance and more ordinances and laws. Mm -hmm. And it was very difficult that the jurisdiction that I had lived in and had worked in hadn't done it. And I happened to be back here visiting one night and a former fellow commissioner called me and said, hey, the city council is taking this up now. They had a new mayor who was not, who was willing to take the hit for the cause and the city council. And people don't understand how it feels when you're excluded they don't know what that feels like and they say so oh people are getting special rights or they're only uplifting this group of people well laws only uplift a group of people when they're being excluded and that's what people need to understand uh, the same thing with black lives matters well all lives matters well that, that all lives should matter but they don't so that's why black lives matters because if i walk out this door i can get shot more as a black man because he said as a trans man honestly people know me as work but when i walk at the door i'm more likely to be shot as a black man okay than a trans man because i can navigate the world and people don't know that about me i've allowed the world to know that i'm trans because i wanted education and for people that came after me not to have this much trouble but sadly they still do and i've been doing this work for over three decades as well as race work and you know we're still here you know because everything we gained almost in the 60s has been ripped away uh, and and you know i'm glad my parents who were children of slavery and the civil rights movement and people didn't want to hear that truth when i would say that before they're like slavery and i'm like yeah i said slavery not just jim crow but slavery you know because they hid a lot of things from us and they let us know some of the things but they hid a lot and it's like and i know that because you know i've experienced life and and across this nation i've experienced life and in many corridors of this nation. And there are good people everywhere. But as long, along with that is this feeling 
of that came out that I would tell everybody about that they didn't want to believe. But then it came out, you know, and it's like, well, I, I didn't want it to come out in this way, but here it is, folks. <laughs> I've been telling you about this feeling. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and sadly, it had to be shown for people to understand that we had not reached a panacea around racism in this country or in the world for that fact. But now you see it and it's ugly and it's in your face and you had to see it to believe it. And the same thing around trans people. I try to tell people visibility isn't just it in the trans movement. But sadly, a lot of people think that there is. But it's like, oh, I've been around a long time and tell you, okay, we've had black people visible. Uh, that hasn't saved us. So there has to be more than just visibility. Right. There ha has to be people and not just the people that are impacted lifting voices up. So that's the same with trans people. Uh, and families understanding that. And that's why I say I'm a man of trans experience because people just get stuck on trans. It's like I do lots of things and support lots of causes. But yes, I talk about trans issues because people need to understand that I'm a man, but just happen to be of trans experience. And because I got there by trans experience does not negate my humanality, my connections in the black community or any other community for that. Uh, it doesn't negate me being a great lawyer. Uh, I don't owe it duty to my client to disclose that when they come in the door. Uh, I'm just a good lawyer. So, but I have obligations as to that. And I didn't mean to go off on a tangent, Dick, but that's what well, we get with a lawyer. <laughs> this, is, this is the time for that tangent. I mean, this is, we're at well, that time. Well, it is the time for the tangent. And so I have been, and you know, as my parents told me, there's always somebody gonna be talking about you. So I really don't care about that. But what I do care about is that they're doing educated talking. Mm -hmm. And so I'm glad to come to a group, you know, and I used to do all those things for free, but I don't anymore because somebody else can educate you on that. I have way too much experience, but if you need me to explain it to you, I will. But my point is that all we are amongst the animal kingdom and in the animal kingdom all species including human have the uh, ability that our gender changes when we start out in utero we're all female babies and whatever happens in utero produces us it's just like i didn't choose to be high yellow and black, as black people want to say, if we utilize colorism that is created by racism. Uh, and we shouldn't buy into that colorism either. So, uh, but yet we do, and we shouldn't buy into that uh, as a black people. We shouldn't buy into it as a people that, oh, transgender people are just made up. Because I've always had this feeling for me Others will say they haven't, but I've always known that. I've always articulated that to my parents, that I was a boy, and that I, for me, I am that typical story, you know? And so they did what resources that were available to them in their lifetime. My parents, I have to say, were very bright and brilliant people to have not had formal educations beyond what they were allowed in this country. And they really were, and they protected me and didn't let me be used as a guinea pig in any experiments. And I remember my mother going, no, you're not, not. you know, she would be the one that would take me, but they would discuss uh, because they had various jobs. 
And when I, we came home and I remember we had gone to Mid-Mo once and what had been recommended. And I remember her stepping in front of me and grabbing my hand. And she goes, no, we're not gonna do that. We'll handle this at home. Just as bright and as intelligent as she could be. But I remember her grabbing my hand and me being this little five or six kid, year old kid. And her definitely stepping in front of her child and going, oh no you're not then her taking me out for a hamburger and ice cream making it as less a traumatic experience as it could possibly be she was not going to let them traumatize her child and i felt that and i still remember that moment and i'm an old man Dalton, and you know it so uh even though i don't want to tell the world but yeah and i'll and i see it in my head i still feel that of her putting her body in front of me and these people of them and they did say negative words uh and she's like oh no well just as nicely and as motherly as she ever wanted to be and grabbing my little hand and putting her body in between me and them she goes oh no no thank you we'll handle this at home and she goes come on baby and then I remember we got home after the ice cream and hamburger and it wasn't too long before dad got home and he sat down at the kitchen table and he said, well, what went on? And they talked and he goes, oh no, we'll handle this at home. Yeah. And you know, I don't know the words they spoke between each other, but I knew they got whatever it was. And, uh, and it was, cause he never outed me on a truck route. He'd take us on his truck routes and I'd be out there and they go, you bought your little boy with you. And he'd go, yep. Yep, I did, and he'd just keep it moving. And uh, and I'd be in the car with them, and people would say that, and they'd be, yep, you know, because you know how people, we, we were car-bound in those days, would go to the drive-in to get food or whatever, and drive about to see stuff, uh, especially out here in the Midwest where we drove cars to things and outings and events, and they'd be like, yep, and they'd just keep it moving, Dick. Mm -hmm. so, so that's why I told you. God gave me two angels, so. Yes, indeed. Yeah, it took uh, your corporate bosses to traumatize you. Amen, brother, and they did, you know, and uh, they did, it, and that was the traumatizing I got through at that time period, and I was traumatized to death, because I was teaching part-time at Lincoln at that time. Oh, I and didn't I, know. Yeah, oh, and you know what? They became home. They supported me. I thought, honestly, I thought, well, you know, Lincoln's going to get rid of me. It's an HBCU. It's conservative. It's Christian-based. So what? Uh, it's a part-time job. I did a calculation because at that time, the corporation was very uh, LGB, LG friendly. You know, they really were. And I was like, oh, this won't be a swing. Oh, no, I was wrong mm -hmm. because that was a huge and it was uh you know, I was constructively discharged. I was so harassed so badly at work. Mm -hmm. And I still have all my job performance reviews. Actually, I keep them because they were all exemplary, you know, because I'm a obsessive compulsive OCD <laughs> uh, type of a person that if you give me a review, I'm gonna meet that or exceed that review. So all my reviews are exemplary. So then what are you judging me on? Yeah. Well, so you started at Lincoln, and I guess I was already there because I got there in uh, 85. Yep, and I came on board in 89, part-time, as an adjunct, a uh, late ad for a friend of mine who got a 
big job at a firm in Nashville. Oh. And so I came in the day before classes in 1989, right. <laughs> I believe. Yeah, 18. Yeah. That was over in the business school. Right, which is why you probably never seen me because I would come in after work and jet in and uh, take over, yeah, business law. Yeah, evening classes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, evening and Saturday morning. Yeah. Yeah, and then we bumped into each other and uh, found out we were both from Fayette. I think you approached me and, and uh, introduced I, yourself. Yes, the great Dick Dalton, because I heard <laughs> about you all over campus. And I'm like, I got to find this man because he is from my hometown. We are from the same hometown. And then I did. I went on a mission to find you. Totally. <laughs> I always find another Fayette. If you're from Fayette, I'm going to find you. If you are a CMU grad, I'm going to find you. You know, and that's the way we gravitate. That's the way I roll. <laughs> well, you know, Kyler, I'm going to have to make a confession. Today is the first time I've ever heard that word, Fayetteian. <laughs> I you thought were, you did the way you looked at me. You were educating me uh, and and exposing my ignorance once again. <laughs> which is fine there's, there's uh, no it happens all the time <laughs> yeah. well we're always learning that's what i'm that's always right. learning so. that's right lifelong so. learners that's good exactly so when did you start that trans people of color coalition was that when you're kind of both places columbia and lincoln or you were at lincoln uh i'm sure i was still at lincoln because i was there until 2013 which is the same year I lost my mother. Um, yeah, and then she wanted me to go away so she could uh, do the final party act because I look mostly like just like my father, although I see my mother in me as well, but I look a lot like him. And she was just calling me him there at the very end, you know, because, yeah. So, but I didn't really go away. I, you know, was with her at the end all the way, pretty much. Uh, so, yeah, and then I transitioned to the East Coast permanently, but I'd been doing work on the East Coast and all over, just flying out from the Midwest, because again, you know, my parents were everything for me, and you know, they were getting older, and then my dad had gone, and I wasn't gonna leave my mother. Uh, you know, it, I had moved out East once uh, with permission of uh, uh, Dr. Henson, and came back and every day I was there, you know, my mother was on my mind and she had been ill at that point. And so, yeah, I just couldn't, even though I would work short periods with the corporation out uh, on in various locations, I still, you know, I contacted my parents every day. We were, you know, I was a mama's boy and a daddy's boy and I, I, I'm not ashamed of it. So, and uh, that's what I was, and uh, and the better for it. And so made sure that I was uh, around. So and glad to have had every day I could with each parent. Hmm. And again, they helped make me strong. My exper every experience that I've had, you know, from being at, at the Fayette school system, which was a good public school system, a good sound public school system that helped build me to the CM. CMU family 
which is a family. I can meet anybody in the world. And I tell you, no matter what their race, no matter what their class, they take you in and you are family. And that is a truth I can testify to. And and the Mizzou family is, is a different sort of family, but it is family for that and uh, the lawyers. And, and it prepared me, you know, I came into this field. They were all at the time and still are, quite frankly, to be a movement, Ivy League, law, Ivy League lawyers. But, you know, I got up and swung a bat and, you know, I'm just as capable as they are of doing it. And I have a good, great legal reputation in the LGBT community. But yeah, I was at Lincoln when I did start that group. It was a group of intentionality. And now there are tons of trans people of color or black groups that when that group was started, which was in 2010, we had no idea how many trans people there were in honestly the US or the world. And we had no idea how many people of color of any ethnicities there were. Mm -hmm. So it was a reach to bring people of color out mm -hmm. so they would be visible. And I look back ironically just a few days ago uh, because people of color weren't stepping out then. They are now. I sort of, uh, you know, and I was going to send that group bye-bye. And, uh, you know, one of my younger colleagues has stepped up to take over that group because I've done all people, or all trans work of all colors. And so it was like a nod out at that time. I was nodding out of the uh, activist portion, so to speak, and just going to nod into doing some writing. Uh, because at that point, I'd been in two decades, you know, mm -hmm. and it's like my friends are, and they were right, I should have nodded out of the activism at that point. It would have saved a lot of my health issues, because what people don't realize is that, uh, and I wasn't getting, is that I kept that disposition, that work ethic disposition that I'd grown up with, which is to work all day and work all night. And, and we were at the beginning of this part of the movement, which people don't understand. Trans people used to do what were called the Harry Benjamin uh, standards of care, which is just to go weave into the woodwork and stay there. And while that was fine, we find now those people are coming out and being a part of the movement. And I don't recommend anybody should live as a part of any movement, but you should be, as my parents say, be proud of who you are and always stand tall. And so they see us out and they see us still being visible, but it's like we intended to be the best of whatever we were gonna be, whether it was the best. You know, I found a love for teaching as a professor that I didn't know I had. And you know, as you know, you know, and you saw, uh, you saw me, and that's a love that I still have, and will work my way back to because I fell in love, as you know, <laughs> and as you heard uh, from my students, and they are most of my LinkedIn account and my Facebook family yeah. uh, from my former students that apparently even telling new students, and I haven't been in a classroom, and I and in seven years. And it is, it's magnanimous when you can help somebody find themselves mm -hmm. as you did, Professor <laughs> Dr. Dr. Dick. Uh, I think we both had that same kind of style. Uh, we helped the student dial into themselves and we were there to support that. And that's a good teacher. And that's what students are looking for. And so once I found that, 
and I put together all the good teachers, the Alice Burks, the, all of the good teachers that I had, that made me fall in love with teaching because I helped a bunch of people that didn't believe in themselves that are out there believing in themselves and they're running this world. And that makes me, and I see that smile on you, <laughs> Professor Dick too. We're both smiling at each other and you guys can't feel that sunlight, but that's what makes me wanna get up every day. And that's what makes me feel happy. And uh, yeah, and I, I'm not an easy guy to cry, but I've learned how to cry through doing this work. And that's what makes me excited. And I actually just had one of those formers calling on the other line through our call here, which tells you something yeah. uh, right away, you know, and, and, and I don't mind because as I've had tough times through my health, I get those notes, which have kept me uh, going, yeah. you know, because, you know, through my lack of self-care, you know, I was almost not here uh, just a year and a half ago. And I have come a long way, baby, thank God. And uh, it's through those notes that I could hardly see and read that helped me carry on, you know, because at some, at some point you're like, woo, I've done all this crazy stuff to my body and it aches now and I'm too young for this. And it's like, oh my gosh. But it's through those lovely notes that I would still get going, you remember that day? And you always called us into your office because you just knew something was wrong. But you would call us in and you'd say, come on down here, X. And I would, because it's just like Dr. Dick doesn't tell you. He cared about them and he would see the look on their face too. And he'd call them in and say, come on in. Now tell me what's really going on. Because we would be there whatever they needed that day. And, yep. uh, and uh, that's the specialness that I, I miss now not having that structure. So, so whether I'm going to be back in that structure, I have to be, because I found my love doing that. So, um, but the activism, yeah, I, I fell into, I felt it was important. I'll be doing it. I'll continue doing it. I'm just doing it in a different way because I don't ever like to be pigeonholed or named <laughs> as or, or tagged because I, there's so much of it in so many ways that I've done enough trans activism that it, it has to be broader than that, you know, and people limit you. And it's like, I'm not just that, as I think you probably read one of the articles in my year and a half ago coming out of I'm more than that and saying I'm more than just that because I am. Uh, and I've given more than just that. As, as the media and people have tried to structure me in just to a, a bottle of transness. It's like I give you lots. It's just like I gave my students lots. And, um, and that's what I'll be giving. So, and I don't want to just write a book about transness. It's like I'm more than that, you know. So you're going to get stuff about a lot of me. And that's what will be coming out more. I just had to do a little bit of slow down and take some time out to heal, heal because I've actually been riding around in wheelchairs and sliding down banisters for the last six or seven years. And I've been thankful to, uh, I would call him a brother from another mother. He felt like my mother and, you know, if you believe in a higher power, I have to agree with him after uh, he said this, uh, my mother and God sent me to him and his wife and, uh, they took care of me for a while, even though I was still going, because he'd be like, how are you getting up and doing that? 
And it's by the strong grace and will of the parents I had that I was still moving and doing as I needed a new back and a new <laughs> repair to a hip. And uh, uh, he and his wife would just shake their head. He's like, nowhere are you even moving. But he had me and I'm blessed to have good friends and they would say good family. And then his mother just kind of took right on over, uh, even though she wasn't in the same state or city, sending me cards. What a sweetheart. And, uh, and I thank her for that too, because she knew I had lost my mother and didn't have a father either. And she just took right on over, sending cards to me and uh, being a mother. Yeah. So, Isn't that the, the grace of God? I mean, it's just uh, amazing. It is. It is, you know. And a lot, uh, lot to be grateful it, for. Oh, well, there's tons to be grateful for. And she just slipped right on in. And she says, I hope he doesn't mind this. But she just throw me a card right on in there and say, you know, well, how's he doing? And uh, and my friend's sister who lives state on the other coast from us would say, you know, she's a doctor. And she would check in and she'd say, well, you know, he needs this or that. And uh, we've talked. And I said, well, you know, I finally got to meet her via the keys. I said, well, you know, I'm your new brother. And she's just wonderful. She said, well, I'm glad to have you, brother. You know, so yeah. by the grace. Yeah. There go I, brother. So you have a website, KylerBroadus.com. Do you have that, uh, uh, I'm, I'm more than this, how did you phrase it? Is that story? No, uh, it's been recent out on my twi Twitter line, at KylerBroadus, uh, because I see the, the magazine sent it out, and I should have that magazine, the BEQ Weekly. And that was her top trending story, she told me, because I thought I was just washed up old old goat. And she said, do you want to know something? She goes, yours, because I was actually, I couldn't see at that time. So she wanted to cheer me up. And she says, and she wanted, she was telling me the truth too, by the way. She goes, well, I have a guy on here that's a top trending story ever that I've had. And I was like, because I'm not, Dick, you know me. I'm like, who is that? You know, because I, I just am a down-to-earth guy, folks, really. I'm a little boy that grew up in the town of Fayette on a dirt road, and that's the way I act, and that's the way I come into any place, even when I'm getting dressed up for the movie. I come in my ball cap, little ball cap, uh, as you see me. Uh, when I do visit Fayette, I'm just a t-shirt wearing a country boy. And so they're like, where's Kyler? And they're like, oh, there you are. I'm like, yeah, I'm nothing special. And I, I'm just like that. And I treat everybody with respect, like my parents taught me to. Because I talk to everybody, the cook, the maid, the whatever. And we see trans people of color trending. We see more than visible. I've done lots of work around that. And other people have as well. But sadly, I used to be the only person of color that would be visible in the trans movement. And that's because I learned to stick your nose in everything, uh, a la Joe Geis. We're going to implicate him on this call here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I learned a la Joe Geis. You know, if you're not at the table, you'll be eaten. Again, some of my favorite professors, uh, Dr. Donald Edson, he would challenge me, and that's why I loved him as a professor. I love professors and teachers that challenge me.
Dr. Uh, Carter, who's still there, that I get to see at homecoming, and 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 his wife, and and I found out, yeah, he's not much older. That's why he was hard when I was in college. But I like that style. And see, I started teaching at 27, so I used to use that same style because I didn't have that much self-esteem as a young child. You know that they didn't think. I was like, oh, who would ever thought? You know. And then I taught for you know until a long time. We won't say how old Dick. So, there's another person I wanted to just check on to see if you knew at Mizzou. Mary Lennox was the dean over at the library, library science. And oh, she was the first black dean, and actually turns out to be the only black dean that Mizzou's ever had. I'm she, sure I knew her then. I'm, yeah. I'm sure I knew her then if she was there. Okay, uh, just. Just checking. She's a friend, and she's been on this radio show before, and she's a, a poet now out in uh, California. And uh, I saw the advertisement for it, and I'm sure I knew her because I knew all of the echelon of Black faculty at that time mm -hmm. and was connected um, via my girlfriend at that time mm -hmm. uh, because she was in library science and uh, knew everybody on campus and all the professors. <laughs> Even though I w had came as a grad student, she was an undergrad student. So I got to know everybody on campus and we was real active, became real active on campus uh, there. So with our, our uh, remaining minutes. Oh, we're already out of time. We're no already, way. Already running out of time. Two professors on a on a on a call, really? <laughs> yeah, that's the way it works, isn't it? <laughs> Do you want to make some comments about our world today? Well, you know, I think that this is a definitely a time of change. You know better than I do. You're a tad older than me, but I see it. We're not ending. We're just changing, and I look forward to the future. I look forward to putting positive vibes out. We had to get nasty stuff out of the way, stuff that we were not dealing with, that we were pretending about. I'm a realist, and Dick knows that about me, I do believe. I'm a realist, and I do treat all people with kindness. And, uh, and I think that um, that's the theme of the change, is that we need to treat all people with kindness. We need to, uh, I saw this therapist and she was talking about a couple this morning, but she said, we all need to radically listen. And that's it too. And we'll be more open to other people and other things if we radically just listen. And not talk, but listen. And I love that so, because I do listen. People don't think I listen, but I listen a lot. And I will assess before I even talk, before I even join or when I'm joining a group, I just listen. And people are so afraid of that when somebody's just listening. They're like, well, what, what do you want? You entered the room, can't you talk? And I'm like, no, I wanna listen first. I wanna hear what's going on and then I will speak. But I'm not a natural speaker. People see that because they see me on the stage a lot or at an event or somebody's having me speak but I'm truly an introvert and I don't charge that way. So I like to hear and assess and then I speak. 
and and I then choose my words and then I've said my piece and people are like, well, aren't we gonna have another dialogue? I'm like, I just told you what I had to say. <laughs> so that, that was the dialogue. And so, because people aren't listening, they aren't hearing. And there's, a, and so that's why we hear all this crosstalk and dialogue and noise. So I'd say through the noise, you know, find a way to take time or space out to meditate, to center yourself or to be with yourself. And it's okay to have quiet time. And because if you listen to all this noise all the time, you're gonna feel like it's chaos. And we are going through that to find the quietness again. And to, for people to determine what they do want and they don't want. So that's what I have to say to people. Radically listen and be radically kind to each other and yourself. And those would be the things that I say. And I feel like people have treated me with radical kindness uh, and radical love uh, because I don't even give myself that. And I think I give it to other people but I think that's what my lack of self-care has done. Cause you know, I, I share that as I go to other activist spaces and with people, uh, because I was a man that would, you know, work till late at night. And that's something I've learned being from the working class, which we no more have class strata, but you know, working class people tend to do that. And then I get up and go and my friends didn't understand that, but I came from two parents that if you're behind didn't hit the floor in the morning, uh, hello, you know, and they'd be here laughing at me now talking about you're sick. What's wrong with you, boy? You better get on up and get to work. Uh, what's wrong with you? And I still have that in, in me. But also with that, take care of yourself. And that I'll end on. I'm a lawyer and a professor, so you could never get me to shut up unless I'm asleep. And I'm probably talking then. <laughs> well, I get to edit this after we're done. <laughs> Well, let me keep talking then. No, I don't want to torture you. So. <laughs> well, Kyler brought us. What a, what a great conversation. I just love this. I, I love seeing you. Uh, it, it's a conversation that we never had before. It's not. And it's great to see you, Dick Dalton. And as I know, the month was getting busier and busier. It's like, I'm glad to take this time out for you and to speak with you. And it is a conversation we never had, and we should have had a long time ago. But thank you for your time, sir. Well, thank you so much. And folks, remember, uh, wherever you are, that is your world. So please, uh, leave your world cleaner, more peaceful, and more loving than you found it. Because if it is to be, it is up to us. Take care. Talk to you soon.